0: A reading from the Gospel of John, the 7th chapter. On the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, Out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit which believers in him were to receive, For as yet there was no spirit, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. So this is the service for people who are serious about church and serious about the Seahawks, right? I I won't keep you... (laughs) On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, proclaiming, producing fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. In 1976, a retired English professor from the University of Chicago uh, named Norman McClain published a book called A River Runs Through It. And it begins with the famous line, in our family there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing. Well, in spite of that sentence uh, and its title, the book is not actually really about a river uh, or about fly fishing, although each of those play a prominent role in it. It's really about relationships and about how Sometimes the ones we love the most are the ones we understand the least. In honor of Norman MacLean and River Sunday, I decided to borrow his title. Uh, he could have been talking about the Bible uh, when he said a river runs through it, because a river runs through almost the entire scripture from the beginning to the end, from the Tigris and Euphrates and Genesis 2 Uh, to the crystal river in Revelation that we just heard about near the end of that book. Uh, A river runs through scripture. Sometimes it's the Nile where Moses began his life. Often it's the Jordan River where Naaman was healed and Jesus was baptized by John. Paul meets Lydia, a businesswoman from Philippi, and his first Gentile convert in Europe next to a river. Like Western Montana, where the book is set along the banks of the Big Blackfoot River, a river runs through scripture. And if you continue along that line and stop and think about it, a river runs through our lives as well. Nearly every place that humans have settled over the past thousands of years has been near a river including Tacoma, located in the estuary and uplands of the Puyallup River, or even University Place on the banks of Chambers Creek. Rivers run through nearly every important place. It's not surprising, we depend upon them for transportation, for food, for fresh, clean water. All land-based life, including humans, depends upon the availability of the fresh water that rivers bring us, including the aquifers, the underground rivers that supply much of our drinking water and that irrigate our crops. No water, no life, says legendary marine biologist Sylvia Earle. No blue, no green. No water, no life, no blue, no green. It's a pretty simple formula that most of us know intuitively, but somehow in our rush to what we think of as progress, we humans keep forgetting it. Earlier this week, you maybe saw the story. The Environmental Protection Agency rolled back parts of the Clean Water Act in an effort to make it easier for developers and large corporate agribusiness to build on and to fill in wetlands and seasonal streams that are actually vital to recharge aquifers and control floods. This was done in the name of property rights, but it doesn't seem like much thought was given to the effect on the common good. In Flint, Michigan and other cities across our country, clean water comes in plastic bottles rather than from a tap. The reason is that polluted wells and water bodies and contaminated pipes that make drinking water deadly for children, adults, and for other living things. And closer to home, on the Snake River, four dams that were built in the 1960s and 70s to provide what we once thought of as clean hydropower and to make it possible for barges to travel inland all the way to Lewiston, Idaho, to transport logs and grains. Those aging dams, whose electrical power generation is now minimal, are also driving Snake River salmon and steelhead to the brink of extinction. And one result of that is that the tribes who depend upon the salmon for their livelihood uh, and their spiritual s- sustenance have been cut off from their source of food and their source of life. Another is that southern resident killer whales who depend for part of their y- life, y- their year on Snake River Chinook uh, for their diet, are literally starving to death and are facing extinction. Here's a way to think about it. Of all the water on earth, and there's a lot of water on earth, 97% of it is salt water, and therefore it's not usable for human consumption or irrigation. Of the 3% that is fresh water, the majority is locked up in rapidly disappearing polar ice caps and, and, or trapped so far underground that it is virtually Uh, inaccessible by the pumps that we have today. Right now, there are nearly a billion people in our world who don't have regular access to safe drinking water, and most of them are not surprisingly children, uh, people living in poverty, or people in the global south, all of whom bear a disproportionate share of the cost of our relentless human desire for growth and consumption. No water, no life, no blue, no green. It's a sobering realization that could easily lead to a sense of hopelessness in the face of what often feels like the inevitable environmental decline. I don't know about you, but I worry about my children and grandchildren when I think of the environmental challenges that our generation is leaving for them. Will they, for example, ever be able to see a glacier on Mount Rainier or Mount Olympus? Will they enjoy fresh salmon and shellfish from the Salish Sea? Will they have clean water from the tap? Or will they, too, get their water from a plastic bottle? And yet, in the midst of all that bad news about the state of our waters and the rivers that run through our lives, Here we have these readings, which are beacons of hope in what sometimes feels like a bleak situation. The reading from Ezekiel 47 is one of a renewed Jordan River that brings refreshment and healing to all who come into contact with it. Ezekiel's vision offers a counterpoint to the current state of the Jordan, which is the site where Naaman was healed and where Jesus was baptized by John, and is currently a highly conflicted and highly polluted body of water. To people who were suffering in the Babylonian exile, Ezekiel promises a river with an abundance of fish, in contrast to the dozens of runs of salmon and steelhead that are listed under the Endangered Species Act, where the trees on the banks and the vitally important riparian zone are filled with fresh fruit and with trees. And to show that Ezekiel was a pretty good ecologist, his vision includes salt marshes, which scientists tell us are among the most biologically fecund places on Earth and which also sequester carbon. It's called blue carbon. And like the trees from last Sunday's sermon, uh, it's an effective means of softening the negative impacts that greenhouse gases are having on the atmosphere. The, The author of Revelation is also writing to people under stress who were being persecuted and oppressed under the imperial occupation of Rome. And it really kind of expands on Ezekiel's vision. The trees now bear fruit every month of the year. And I think of those trees laden with fruit in the Yakima and Wenatchee and Columbia River valleys. Their fruit is for every living creature. Their leaves, the author tells us, are for the healing of the nations. Recalling the verse from Psalm 104, you send forth your spirit and they are created and so you renew the face of the earth. The gospel reading from John 7 is actually written in stone uh, on the water feature in the front of this church. Your church, which is named after a water feature, St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows, Out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. So now the river flows through us as well. Tom Robbins may have been right when he playfully quipped that people were invented by water as a means of transporting itself from one place to another, but Jesus said it first. I think of baptism, of course, when I hear those words, but what an interesting picture of baptism it is. Instead of simply flowing over the believer's head, the rivers of living water now flow from the believer's heart. The grace-filled water of baptism doesn't just flow over us, it flows into and through us and out of us, like the rivers in Ezekiel's vision and the author of Revelation, for the healing of the nations. Well, what might that mean for us? What might living water flowing from believers' hearts look like on River Sunday? Well, I could, perhaps, begin with something as simple as learning our watershed. Uh, writer and organizer Ted Myers often quotes a Senegalese environmentalist, Baba Dayum, who says, "We won't save what we don't love. We can't love what we don't know, and we don't know what we haven't learned." Myers proposes something that he calls watershed discipleship. And watershed discipleship begins, like all discipleship, in baptism. But not only are we baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus, as, as Paul tells us, we're also baptized into our watershed. And an important part of our call as disciples and people of God during the season of creation is to work for the health of our watershed, and to help guarantee that its water is life-giving and life-sustaining, not only for the human community, but for all creation. And it starts by simply figuring out where we are. In what watershed, for example, do you live? Here's a hint. It might be underground, flowing through a pipe. In what watershed is St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows? And what can you learn from it and about it? What opportunities for mission and service arise from what you learn? And who can be your partners in working for the health of your watershed? Not just other Lutherans or Christians, but all people of goodwill who live in the watershed and depend upon its health for their health and well-being. Here's another hint. The original inhabitants of this land, the Puyallup, the Nisqually, and the Silicum, can be our teachers. Like all true discipleship, it's a daunting task, but we don't need to do it alone. We've got each other, and we also have the Spirit who promises to renew the face of the earth. As you consider your call to water to shed discipleship, if you choose to go that way, I leave you with the words of a song. That is a fitting one for River Sunday, and it's from a singer named Peter Mayer. And I'm going to try a technological uh, bit of wizardry here and see if I can get this to work.
1: I was swimming, seeking comfort, I was wrestling waves to find a around cling to a stone to hold me fast. There I would be from the river and its dangers and I proclaimed by rock divine. And narrow passage, a peaceful sandy shore. God is a river swimmer. so let go. Still, I conned my rod tightly with conviction in my arms, never looking. And I was swept away So I'm going with the flow now These relentless twists and bends Acclimating to the motion And a sense of being there And this river is like my body now It carries me along Through the ever-changing scene And by the rocks that sing this song. God is a river, not just a stone. God is a wild, raging rapids and slow meandering flow. God is a deep and narrow passage. Peaceful, sandy shore God is a river Swimming So let go God is the river